On December 29, 2019, Hole in the Air was privileged to chat with Sonny Fox and his granddaughter, Rachel. Sonny is revered as a pioneering giant of television history, most famous for providing quality programming for young people, including as host of the legendary program Wonderama. Now, 94, Sonny tells us of his youthful years in Brooklyn, his experience as a prisoner of war after being captured during the Battle of the Bulge, and his momentous career in television. We also hear how proud he is of Rachel, who is a field deputy in a Los Angeles City Council office, and of course, how proud Rachel is of her grandpa. Hello, everyone. This is your podcast of choice, no doubt, Hole in the Air. And we have two amazing guests today. One is Sonny Fox, and the other is his granddaughter, Rachel. Uh, Welcome, both of you. Thank you, and she's actually the amazing one. (laughs) Thank you, Grandpa. She she is, and we were discussing how she uh, works for city council office here in L.A., as I've done in the past. One of the things in your book, which is titled, But You Made the Front Page, Wonderama, Wars, and a Whole Bunch of Life, the description of your parents could have come from a Woody Allen film like Radio Days, I think. It's just lovely, funny. Um, but one of the things that struck me was your description of your father and how he would make, how he would litigate and call in complaints. And, uh-huh. and I, it occurred to me that those are calls that Rachel probably takes <laughs> all the time. Because when you work in City Hall and you love your constituents, but you get calls from people who are annoyed immensely over one thing or another, sometimes that's the, the nature of the job, and you try to help them. Reading about your father made me think of that kind of person, and he is perhaps an extraordinarily perfect example of that. Could you maybe mention that uh, what happened with the St. Patrick's uh, Parade complaints, the lines being painted? Oh, 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 they were painted white, and he said they should be painted green. That was that was a minor complaint. He had many more than that. But he called, but he would repeatedly call in. And well, he would. He, I don't know repeatedly, but he would certainly make it plain that he thought they were goofing up a very important aspect of New York life. Now he was not Irish, obviously, nor he, did he have any Irish friends. He was just uh, speaking as a New Yorker that thought things should actually follow the rules. He took these things very seriously, and he thought people should be aware of them and should um, obey them. And he felt that way about things like a Railway Express, too, which he took on for some reason. I don't remember what. But he took them to court and won the case, by the way. So on the side, otherwise he was in a very dull business called textile conversion. That is, he would take orders from the ultimate users and then text, take the cotton as it came out woven and put it through the process of being designed and woven to the specifications of the end user. So he was the middleman, but they called them textile textile converters. That's what he was. And you could have been in that business. But he for, wanted me to be, of course. But before we leave him behind and find out more about what moved you into the world in which you've been a, 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 a crucial player for many years, entertainment... Uh, educational, television, all kinds of things that we want to touch on. But I, there was, I don't want to let go of the idea that he was a little bit maybe 
eccentrically ornery. You, there's a story in your book about the size of pants and that he had a gift certificate that his kids bought him to go to a, uh, a place to, a, a, a not Macy's, but some department store to get pants that he wanted. But oh, yeah. oh the, no, it was, a, it was a men's store. Men's store. Haberdashery, right. And we wanted to buy it. We were giving him that as a Father's Day gift. And um, they said, no, the cuff is not wide enough to go over my shoes when I get dressed. And the salesman said, well, you put the pants on first and then put your shoes on. So, no, no, I put my shoes on and then I put my pants on. He said, well, but Mr. Fox, it would really be, he said, and my dad said, I put my left shoe on, I put my right shoe on, I put the left leg into my pants and I put the right legs. If you don't have the pants, that will help me. Give me the certificate for it, and I will go elsewhere. He would have it no other way. Why would he change, you know, to a more practical way when that was his way? So he was able to stand up to big stores, and at one point, was it I can't remember, General Electric. And once he dug in, he was his position was firm, and he would take people to court over this. Yes, he did, well, and and and, and would win. As a matter of fact, I remember going to play poker one night in Westport, Connecticut, and one of the guys who was there who had not been there before. So I said, "Oh, your your father's J. A. Fox." I said, "Yes." Yeah. yeah, I was just on this case. I said, "What?" It turns out that Dad brought this case to the court to get it his way, and. Um, I said, how did it turn out? He says, he won. <laughs> but this is the guy in the poker game who I'd never met before relating a story about my father. So he had very few assets in terms of knowledge or, you know, that kind of thing. He didn't go too deep. But who he was was pretty well defined, and he was not going to switch it for anybody. So, Even his children, when we said, you know, so you put your shoes... Pants on. Then you put no, no. If you can't do it, I'll go to another place where they'll have it. He was set in his ways. When I grew up in Brooklyn, the neighborhoods were very, very isolated one from the other. We were in a Jewish part of the street on Ninth Street, and the other part of the street was Catholic Italian, and we went to the same school together, but we never ever went to that part of the street. That was was like there was a wall in the middle of the street. And the Italian kids that we went to school with were there, and the Jewish kids were there, and never the twain should meet. There was some degree of bullying at times and, and, and strife between the different... No, I don't think that was racial. It's that we just... I was not harassed for being Jewish, that I can recall. But the point is we were very... Conscious, We were very tribal, I guess is the word. And the world was at that point, leading into World War II and what was happening in Germany and so on. So, you know, we became more and more conscious of our religion, not only because I went to Hebrew school for two years and went to synagogue and stuff of that sort, but it, it was New York in those days before the war was, as we were approaching the war, uh, very tribal. And maybe it was for a lot of years before that. 
with the Catholic neighbors were the Catholic, you know, part of the town, the Jewish was another, and so on. So, and then, of course, you had other na- neighborhoods that the blacks were there and so on, the African-Americans, excuse me, we called them blacks in those days. We were a very stratified, isolated bunch of units within the borough of Brooklyn and even within the school. The question I will ask any New Yorker of that era, um, Charlotte Roos, did you ever eat a Charlotte Roos? I dated her. No. Um, <laughs> Charlotte Roos came in a cardboard container. It had a sponge cake base and then a whipped cream topping. And I don't know what it cost us a nickel or whatever it was to buy it at the bakery or the candy store, wherever you bought it. That was a Charlotte Roos. Why it got that name, je ne sais pas. Was it good? Was it good? Yeah. Of course it was good. That's why we all know it. Um, If you ever meet her again, give her my (laughs) I think they they're no longer sold in New York no or, other? or elsewhere. I think they've disappeared. What what Charlie Russes? Yeah. Oh yeah, they've been seen around for a while. But humor, good humor truck disappeared too, right? right? Uh, there were a lot of constants in those. The vegetable wagons that used to come around, drawn by horses, with all the fruit, and the wives would come out and buy their f- vegetables. And That's gone, of course. My childhood, the automat. Oh, well, the automat. And, uh, yeah, I remember once we were in high school and we went to see something in New York, the class, and then we went to the automat to have lunch. And somebody found that the egg sandwich thing was broken and that you could lift up the lid and take it out without putting in a quarter and they would resupply it. So suddenly everybody who was there from the class decided they liked egg salad, you know, and they all kept waiting for a free egg salad sandwich at the automat. That was a highlight. I believe that. Um, the- do you know, excuse me, do you know what an automat was? No. Okay. It was a series of, uh, well, shells encased in glass and enamel, and they went from food type to food type. And when you wanted it, you took a quarter, put it in a slot, and the lid would open, and then you would take it out. That was called an automat. So they didn't have to serve you. They didn't have to employees who served you. And you could, you, know, you were limited to what they were selling, but you had a choice within that limitation. So that was called an automat. And that's why finding the egg sandwich lid that opened without putting in a quarter, suddenly everybody was there loved egg salad sandwiches. And there are still, you can see movies of the era when New York was an, uh, an attraction and the automats were famous. And they, they and lasted they, quite a while, actually. Yeah. I, you know. Yeah, you can see... Uh, I'm tempted to say there's a film with Cary Grant and Doris. I'm sorry, what? I'm tempted to say there's a film with Cary Grant and Doris Day in the 60s where they're in the automat. If you're tempted to say it, <laughs> go ahead and say it. So, Renee is, is not mic'd up, but she's sitting here, so there are the four of us. And her father was at the Battle of the Bulge. Ah. Um, and what, what, he was at the Battle of the Bulge? Was he watching it or was he in it? He was in it. That's different than being at. Yeah. Okay. Um, what, Be careful what, with your he words here, Paul. He was a medic. Uh, he was a medic? Yeah. So he, was he attached to any unit? I don't. I okay. Don't, I'm sure he All was. Right. But, yeah. I know that he was one of the first units to free some of the camps. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think... Uh, I don't think he really liked to talk about it much, mm-hmm. I, as is often the case, I guess. Um, 
It's almost, it's almost, yeah, a little while ago I celebrated the anniversary of the beginning of the Battle of Bulge and then the uh, end of it for me. Which is one of the things in the Wikipedia entry about you. Sonny Fox, although not your name by birth, but the name you're best known by. Um, the Wikipedia entry does go into some discussion of your being a prisoner of war. Yeah, and in those days when you were a prisoner of war with the Germans, being Jewish was not, not, not terrific. And I happened on the most fortunate, wonderful uh, uh, help to me, and I didn't realize how much of a help it was when it happened, when I was being checked in to the first prison camp. And they were using an American to be the clerk, an American prisoner that was already there. They pressed into service to check us in. And I drew this guy. And he said, name rank, sir. And then he said, religion. I said, I have to give you that. I'm not supposed to give you that. According to the, you know, the agreement on prisoners of war, I don't, you know. He said, listen, kid. You don't give it to me, you stand out in the snow until you do. Now, I had just gotten off a boxcar that I'd been in for about six days, seven nights, on the way to this prison camp, and that wasn't heated, and it was no food. So sitting outside and standing outside didn't seem to me like a great idea. So I said, okay, I'm Jewish. And this guy, who saved my life in a way, looked at me and said, Protestant. And I said, Jewish. He said, Protestant, get out of here. Now, at the moment, all I wanted to do was get inside and get warm and get some food, but he saved my life, really. I mean, he just changed my life by, from there on in, I was recorded as Protestant in all of the prisoner of war records and so on. And, um, you know, just having that guy there at that time, if I believed in a purposeful God, I would have said he sent them there to, to be there for that moment. And other uh, prisoners who were Jewish were... Uh... Yes, a whole bunch of them, and I knew some of them. Uh, were, well, it depended where they, who they, what rank they were. If they were non-commissioned officers, as I was, even though they were separated out to a different barrack than I was in in the first camp, when we were moved to a second camp, just the non-coms, the non-commissioned officers... They took the the Jewish uh, guys out of their part of the camp, put them all in with us, and we all moved together to the second camp. And that's where um, the heroism of this guy who we all know about helped us when he was asked about identifying Jews. you know that story? Well, why don't you tell us? Please. He was with the 106th Division, and that was the other division that was on the line with us. They had just arrived on the line five days before all hell broke loose, and they were still taking their rifles out of Cosmoline, I think, when you know the offensive came. At any rate, he was a he is six striper. He was a top sergeant. Uh, I was a sergeant, but he was a top sergeant. So he became the spokesman for the prisoners, and they were from two divisions, the 28th, that was my division, the 106th, which had just come on the line. They asked him, as the, as the ranking officer there, said, tomorrow we want all Jews to step out. These are the Nazis. 
he sent back an order saying, tomorrow morning, everyone steps out. So when the the Germans came by the next day, they looked at the crowd that was out there and said, these can't all be Jews. And let's see if I can get this without breaking the tears. He said, we are all Jews. They put a gun to his head. He said, we want to see the Jews. He said, again, we are all Jews. And his heroism... Now, I'm not sure I would have been identified because I was down as a Protestant and the last name was Fox, but he sure saved the lives of a lot of the guys there that day by his heroism. And I know his son, by the way, the one who's, who saved our lives. And um, it, it is, um, you know, that's why I'm here. And that's why a few of us are here and around. These are unknown heroes. Well, that's one of the things in, in your book that you make clear, I think, from the start, which is that there are all kinds of people who, in their daily life, and also in extraordinary circumstances, make a real difference in our heroes. And um, you, you specify women in certain jobs when you're mi- discussing this. And again, this book is a few years old. I don't expect you to remember every page and every word, but you, you do communicate that and I suspect that has a lot to do also with uh, how well you uh, famously relate to kids well yeah I didn't set out to be the hero for kids okay that came by by accident I needed a job I was a foreign car I was a correspondent for the voice of America and I covered the Korean War and so on then I got married while I was over there I imported my beloved from New York she flew over we got married in Japan and then we took a trip around the rest of the world when I was finished. And then when I came back, I, I, you know, I had saved up some money. We blew that on the trip around the world. I was broke. I needed a job. That's when somebody said, well, there's a new station going on in St. Louis, and it's part of this whole new thing called educational television. I hadn't even heard of that. And uh, they're looking for you know, staff people. So I sent them a note, and I said, uh, you know, this is who I am, this is what I've done, I'm looking to work. And they sent me back a note, and they said, well, fly out, and we'll interview you. And I said, I don't have enough money to fly out. And they said, oh, okay, we'll pay half your fare. I said, okay. So I flew out to St. Louis. The station wasn't on the air yet. Educational stations were just beginning and they weren't on the air yet. I had no idea what an educational station was or who these people were, but I needed a job. So I flew out, and they interviewed me, and for some reason they said, okay, we want you with us. You have to come out to St. Louis to live here, and uh, we can only pay you $125 a week for five one-hour shows. Okay. So I finally collected my new wife when we drove out to St. Louis and rented an apartment for about 85 bucks a month. And I eventually, seven, it took seven months for that station to get on the air after I arrived, but eventually started doing a one-hour daily television show without any instructions about what I was supposed to do. It was an educational channel and from 9 to 3, it was run on behalf of the Board of Education. 
And then at four o'clock when I was on, it turned into just educational television. Now, I had an assistant, one assistant, and I had two cameras. I had an hour a day, five hours a week to fill with no budget. Welcome to television in 1954. So that was my breaking in ground, which is, I sort of have, I had to invent who I was. I had to really make it work based on just me. I had one assistant and no no budget. So it, it gave me a time to try things. Nobody was there to tell me I was good or bad. Nobody was watching, I assumed. And so I just did what I wanted to do. I had guests come on who I knew were in St. Louis and I thought it would be interesting. And um, I, that's all, I was very happy. My wife and I lived in a flat uh, paid 85 bucks a month for walk up four flights and I was on television something I had never thought to be on and doing a show and since it was four in the afternoon I obviously thought my audience would be kids there was another thing going on and that was there was a new network show in development called Let's Take a Trip this is 1955 when I went on the air and they were looking for a host to go with two kids to a different location every week live on camera the first time that was ever going to happen on American television and they were looking for a host and somebody said well oh I know it was a lady from Newsweek who had done some feature on what I had done or what was going on in stations like ours and she had mentioned my, my what I was doing and she was there to meet Irv Gitlin who was the head of CBS Public Affairs and he was starting a new one-hour show weekly and was looking for somebody to host it. So uh, that's not why she met with him. She met with him about something else. She was interviewing, Newsweek was interviewing the head of CBS Public Affairs, and she said, as she was packing, she said to Irv Gillen, so Irv, what else are you doing? He said, well, we're starting to think about this uh, kids thing that we want to do, and uh, she said, oh, I just met, I just interviewed a guy and uh, we just did an article. We just did a piece on a guy in St. Louis and it sounds like he might be of interest to you. And that was it. I knew nothing about this backstory. Except six months after I started in St. Louis, the phone rang and said, this is somebody from CBS. I'm a producer for a new kids show that we're doing. Would you be interested? Ha! smallest measure of time was between the time I heard the question I said yes <laughs> and so they flew me into New York so my wife and I went to put me up at a hotel and I went over to meet the head of public affairs at CBS television named Irving Gitlin and he was very sweet and very warm and then he said well uh, I have a clip of your work I said, oh, how'd you do that? And of course, they had a CBS affiliate in St. Louis, so it was easy enough. But to me, I couldn't believe it. So we sat down and watched. I had done a feature on Charles Lindbergh. And he turned to me after he watched it, and he said, is that representative of your work? I said, actually, that's one of the best things I did. He said, well, yeah, I liked it. And we went back and sat down. He said, well, we're starting this new CBS show. Would you be interested? Huh. And so six months after I started... 
in television, I was given my own network show with two kids in 1955. That was the first show to be remote, uh, to do it from a different remote uh, place every week. Now remember, traveling from place to place in those days was ponderous because there was no miniaturization that we're familiar with today. So when we went on the road, we took those cameras out of the studios, the big cameras with four turrets and big, you know, things that they were on, and big fat cables. And we had to move with two huge trucks, one for the equipment and one for it to be a control room. So it was not easy to do what we were doing, which was to go to different places every week. And nobody had ever done that before. So we pioneered that in television, and a lot of guys who ended up being directors or producers of sports shows that came from remote locations cut their eye teeth on that show. But I'd ha- I loved it. I couldn't have been happier than just, you know, one week it would be in you know, a football stadium, next week it would be a museum, the next week it would be uh, a visit with uh, uh, former President Truman at his house. Who knew? And it was you with two kids? I was me and two kids. and the Same two kids each two week. Kids. Until like, same kids. Yeah, same. Yeah, Pud and Ginger were the first two. And I inherited Pud and Ginger, and they were just absolutely wonderful. And so I um, had a great relationship with them, and I loved doing the show. And so I was very happy. We, we were doing fine. I got a, another apartment, and life was going along fine. I think I went on for three years. That was how I got into network television. And you were, uh, you were, frankly, from a family that was significantly in textile. Yeah, nobody else was. And, and you loved uh, radio and film. As a matter of fact, my brother-in-law, man who married my sister, older sister, and was working diligently, making you know, okay money, five days a week, sweating over what he was sweating over. And he looked at me one day, knowing that all I did was an hour a week on television. He said, you really, you really can make a living from that? <laughs> I said, yeah. I mean, the idea that a guy could apparently work one day a week and do so well when he was slaving away at a 40-hour week, you know, and getting by, was just, he could not get his mind around that. So when you told your father that you were thinking of a career uh, in... I guess radio, radio and television, uh, his response was... Well, he had wanted me to come into his world, which was textiles, textile conversion and so on. And he had dreamed of becoming, you know, his partner as as his son. And, And it was hard for him to let go of that. And the ephemeral idea, and I remember my grandmother, my mother's mother, coming into the kitchen after she watched my half-hour network show and saying, so great. It's very nice watching him, but from this he could make a living. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the idea that this was work, the idea that I could have so much fun and still get paid well was hard for people to embrace who worked 40 hours a week to make ends meet, you know. And I can understand that. It's just... Didn't seem to be just, maybe. I, I think one of the things that uh, I, when I say I know of you, I, as a kid, I, I watched uh, Wonder Woman with wonder and, and, and joy. And it was clearly something that 
all all number and manner of kid watched. Uh, but yeah. I, I, but I, I just I just want to emphasize. It didn't start out that way. I took it seriously. I had a guy on talking about rocket launching. He spent 20 minutes talking about, or 25 minutes talking to me. I thought it was, you know, wonderfully interesting about the history of rocketry and how we got to the point where we could actually now go to them. And apparently that did not work for my audience, and I got told by them afterwards, my producers, uh, from now on you do three minutes and go to a cartoon. I mean, they... they <laughs> <laughs> that was it. So it took me another maybe six months to figure out what the show was and how to relate to the kids. And, you know, television was very young, and this was all new, and we were all feeling our way along. But gradually, gradually, it became what I was known for, which was, you know, my only asset, since I'm not a performer, was the kids. And I had no budget, so the kids became what the show was about. So what happened out of necessity turned out to be a great idea. I, I know. I look at it. And, and there are certainly some videos on YouTube and elsewhere you can find and watch. Uh, some of them amazing with Robert F. Kennedy, for example. But um, I'm reminded, it's very poignant for me to look at, at the videos and, and also to see, for example, Leonard Bernstein with, with the kids and the the. the well, uh, that was not... He didn't do that on my show. He had no, no, I, I know, but I'm, I'm saying there was some television, and not all the same by any means, no, where there was, was a sense of, of recognition of, of children and, and their potential and their, <laughs> their maturity and their the distinctions in terms of well, being kids Well, you know, they felt they had a responsibility to that faction. Of the faction. CBS television, 6.30, had the University of the Air, and it was a half hour or an hour show that you could take for course credit actually i mean in those days you know they the, the networks accepted a sense of responsibility you know on behalf of the public because they were granted this license and they were supposed to be serving the public interest convenience and necessity so they took that fairly seriously because it hadn't yet become the hugely profitable uh, thing that it did become where that drove all other considerations off the table. So the guys who ran the networks in those days and the executive producers and so on, all, all took the fact that they had a responsibility to serve the public and necessity as, law, as well as to entertain. And each of the networks had some programming that reflected that. So that was that was in those days when we were just starting out. That that got over that got swamped by commercialism pretty soon. But you you humbly before mentioned that you were not an entertainer and that what you had for your going for you was were these kids. Well in yeah. on Wonderama, yeah, that was it. I had four hours every Sunday to to somehow keep the ratings going. And I took me six months of, you know, I would have experts on space travel come on and spend 25 minutes. And that was interesting to me. It wasn't interesting to all the kids, you know, depending upon the ages. So gradually, and I think I've said this already, it took me maybe six months to realize that the kids were the show. They were uniquely interesting, fascinating, funny, unpredictable and that was all I needed to really tune in on. And then after that, I loved 
working on the show and, and meeting the kids every week and finding out, you know, all the things that and the jokes they told me and the uh, Simon Says and all the other things that I did with them. And then I enjoyed taking them out of their homes to meet me at an ocean liner, to meet me to clean up Central Park. They did. We cleaned up Central Park. Fifty, I, 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 I said to them for about three weeks, Central Park is in terrible shape, and it was in the 1960s. And I said, so I want you to meet me here, and I know it was three weeks, two weeks, one week. Bring your parents, dress in not good clothes, and I didn't know if anybody was going to come. I didn't ask for RSVPs or anything like that. And I knew the press would be there, and I thought, well, mm-hmm. Well, I guess about 15,000 kids showed oh up. Gosh. And we put them in, we had 25 Eagle Scouts, and we gave each Eagle Scout a contingent. And off they went in the park, and they picked up the most, they filled two huge garbage trucks <laughs> with stuff. And, you know, the next day the city, you know, newspapers carried it in one editorial said, hey, if Sonny Fox and the kids can do this, why can't the city? Well, my guess is this was either the tail end of John Lindsay's uh, or, or a beam. Probably. No, it was John Lindsay. John Lindsay? Yeah, and he got, I, I got him on the show and um, spent an hour with him and letting the kids phone in their questions. So, yeah, everybody in, in the political arena knew that I had a lot of, you know, outrage. But, but that was, that was the time when, uh, especially when Beam became mayor, I guess. But when uh, sanitation strikes were starting, the idea of trash not being picked up, the idea of New York City kind of becoming a, a lesser, perhaps going bankrupt city place to be in, and and the premise that people could actually beautify. Uh, well, their it wasn't that we expected them to do that all the time in Central Park. It was a show to the city that, A, the park was dirty and needed cleaning up, and, B, the fact that the people were willing to come out and do it in their, you know, was sort of a lesson. It was sort of a prod to get the city to pay attention. So it worked on two ways. One is we did clean up Central Park, but more importantly, the newspapers carried editorials as well as news about this and it sort of provoked you know that kind of reaction so that was good the idea of using whatever power accrued to me from being successful on television was always intriguing to me about what can I do with this where can I take this what can I be do that will make this a good idea that will make me uh, be able to use this power to achieve some really good ends. That was the interesting part of it. I, of course, I enjoyed it being popular. I enjoyed doing the show. But the challenge was, okay, now what do I do with this? Where do I take this? You know. And so you've have uh, done many different things, and some, as your book describes, uh, some succeeded in terms of. Of lasting on television or what have you, some didn't. But I, it, you, as you said before, you invent yourself in many ways. Well, I want to and turn. You, you kept I, fresh. I want to turn to Rachel now. It's my granddaughter sitting here with us, and Rachel works for the city now, the, our city government. And, and Rachel, 
given what I was describing about me and what I was doing, would that have been of interest for you for you to come in and, and, and see what we could do together? Definitely. I think when people show that the government is maybe missing an opportunity or not performing a function that they should be doing and that people come out and then there's there's a kind of partnership in recognizing the issue and then understanding what the government's role in fixing the issue is important. And having a channel like a children's television show um, be that channel is very interesting, and I'm not sure what it would be like today to see that. Well, Rachel is is absolutely, this is going to sound gratuitous and whatever. Not gratuitous if she's saying something good about my granddaughter. I am. But... but, Having worked as you know, both both on the as a community person, being involved in many community matters over the years and political, but also having worked in a number of governmental offices, uh, it's, it's just a profoundly welcome thing to to know that there's somebody working in a governmental office who is extraordinarily. Uh, devoted and attentive and energetic. Well, actually, and in, she's in, always been that way. Actually, in a way, it's sort of very much reflective of what I was able to do. She's using what power she has to deal with these issues. I dealt with what power I had. Hers is a political power base. Mine was a, you know, a television power base. But I'm so proud of her for taking whatever power she has, whatever capabilities derived from where she sits in city government, to work on behalf of the people in the community. That's the most wonderful thing about being with her and watching her career grow. Rachel really is extraordinary about uh, about just always, since the moment we crossed paths, she's just always been somebody who was there for the community and for constituents. And this is never a question about I'm, that. I'm well aware of that because every time I reached out to her to be with us or do something, she was no, she was off doing a party over there and planning <laughs> a thing over there. Thank you. You know, it, I'm so happy that she's here today. So we, even I don't care how this goes. I mean, <laughs> what I do care about is that she's part of it. And, well, and it's, it's very pleasing that she's yes, here. Thank you. And no, and I. I, I'm glad to have the opportunity to have this conversation with with both of you and Grandpa. I've ta- told you before, but because we've had conversations when I started growing up that were serious conversations at the dinner table or at your bar at home, um, you held us all to a higher standard as kids. No one had those conversations with us growing up, whether it was about current events or what was going on in the White House at the time um, when Bush was in the White House. But you kept us having those conversations and bringing um, that sense of responsibility of a greater call to action that we had to leave the world a better place. And that's where I ended up in this position. And for my deep love of Los Angeles and a strong commitment to making sure that people realize that government can work for you. You just have to stay involved, hold people accountable that you do elect in office, but that we all as citizens have this responsibility to participate in our government and in our communities well thank you for that praising i may not deserve it but i also don't deserve deserved. some of the things i'm being blamed for so it balances out <laughs> now, what are you being blamed for in, in your book which i'm assuming is available on amazon and all yes. the right places oh, yes. um again it's titled but you made the front page yeah. when drama wars and a whole bunch of lies if you stop for a moment i'd like to explain the title okay when I was at NBC as a vice president of children's programming, and they decided in their own wisdom 
that they were they had to save some money. Uh, the network decided how to save some money, and they decided that they didn't need a vice president of children's programming, which was what I was at NBC at the time, that they could fold that into daytime and save my salary and the salary of my staff. So then I was informed that uh, you know my my time was over, and the New York Post, the newspaper carried a big headline saying bloodbath at NBC. And then it listed the more prominent people that were being fired. And they only had room on the front page for one name before it carried over inside, you know, like the victims of an airplane crash or something like that. The only name they had room for on the front page was mine, and then the rest would carry over. So my mother called later that day. She said, congratulations. I said, what about? So I read the New York Post. I said, Ma, it says I got fired. She said, yeah, but you made the front page. <laughs> <laughs> the ability of her to turn a negative into a positive was really a wonderful lesson, you know, one I, I took, took to heart. There's something that was said in, in the book that, I found really intri- intriguing. You mentioned people like um, Soupy Sales and others who were adroit entertainers of, of kids, but, and they were entertainers. And in a sense, you used to your advantage, I guess, that you were not exactly that. Uh, you found yourself in the circumstance, and you dealt with it natural, naturally and honorably and creatively, and you, and you figured the formula out. But you also mentioned that a lot of times with kids, maybe a kid would say something and and then you, the, the person would move on, whoever was maybe interviewing the child. Uh, but that you found a secret of it being to wait, to, to oh. be okay with, with some silence. Yeah, that's right. Kids often did that and they would say something quickly and then stop. And I learned to let that silence hang in the air for a while and then many times they would start up again and the good stuff would come out not always not always but it's one of those things i learned over the period of the years that, that you know they'll start a, a thought and then stop as they examine the thought they just started with and then if i let them have a moment they might go on with it, or I might ask them a follow-up question, and they would go on with it. And now it didn't always work, but many times that's when the good stuff came out. You know. So, so it's also about listening. Yeah. And and this is almost a pompous question, but do you think that we could all do more of that in general? Just oh yeah. Letting people speak and and pause, just listening and to each other, listen yes. to themselves and each other. Yeah, I, I just you know I'm just so appalled that we have staked out our positions politically so so the boundaries are so clear that we can't have any interactions anymore nobody can sit down with somebody who thinks Trump is wonderful or good or doesn't understand why we don't trust him and have a conversation about that instead of you know dismissing that person it 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 it's fascinating to do that. You may not agree with it. You may end up being <laughs> irritated. But it's important not to foreclose that conversation is what I'm saying. One of the things, that, uh, again, in my hurried but fascinated read of your book, 
which was dropped off to me by Rachel a day or two ago. So I crammed it you, in. In, in a day or two? Or really My ponderous time. thoughts you crammed it? Go ahead. Um, with, the, with delight and vigor. Um, but uh, something that you went through that I believe my father went through, Renee's father went through, was the experience of a New York Jew uh, going into service, going to training, a training camp in the South, and (laughs) seeing how... Oh, those scrawny little yokels (laughs) who are the trainer peoples. First of all, I had to learn what Sissons was. Do you know what Sissons is? What? We all have that. Or we all know the word, except as it was done by this scrawny southerner who just loved to taunt Jews anyway. But anyway, he said, okay, when you make a left turn, you turn on the left heel with the assistance of your right foot. When you make a right turn, you turn on the heel of your left, right foot, and, and the assistance of your right foot. And for two days, he was giving me those orders, and I couldn't figure out what the assistance of my foot was, what part of my foot was the assistance what he was saying with the assistance. But it took me a couple of days to figure that one out. But they loved getting New York Jews down there. This guy, especially the scrawny southerner, yokel. But at any rate, yeah, it, it, <laughs> it was my first venture being in the Army out of my comfort zone. And we all had to go through that. And it was an interesting exercise. But you you also uh, witnessed and, and were horrified by the racism and the uh, the segregation. Oh, down in the south. Yeah, when the I south. got down to the south, oh, I could not believe the white drinking fountains and the and the, the black drinking fountains and the buses. We were all soldiers, but the buses that took us into town from our camp, Fort Benning, into Cologne. You know, uh, there were buses. We were all American soldiers, but there were buses for white and buses for black. And coming, and then later on, coming out of uh, the war, <coughs> out of service, uh, out of being captured, out of uh, uh, being held hostage, and you came back, and you must have felt uh, anguish, anger, concern that you saw people being treated. Uh, in a racist manner, given the underpinnings of, of what you were fighting against. Well, I thought, listen, that didn't come out of the war, out of being a POW. I felt that way before then. Um, and so, and none of that had anything to do with what happened in the prison camp. Because in those days, the army um, segregated soldiers. So the blacks' soldiers were the truck drivers and were not in the fighting units, except one in Italy. You do talk in the book about one fellow prisoner that essentially, I guess, to keep warm, you everybody sort of huddled together and, and, and sleeping quarters to. Uh, and you talk about my bedmate. Your bedmate. Oh, we had these bunks, and the bunks were three, two or three days. It was had been a concentration camp when when they imprisoned us. I knew it was because on the outside it said "Arbeit macht frei," which was what work makes you free. That was outside of all this, uh, this, you know, the concentration camps. So they had evacuated the Jews, and we were thrown in. And we were given exactly the same diet they were giving to the Jewish concentration camp people. 
So we were not only in a concentration camp instead of a POW camp, we were treated not as POW prisoners, but as Jewish prisoners. It had nothing to do with religion. That's the way they treated us. So for breakfast, we had a bowl of we had for breakfast we had a cup of tea. For lunch, we had a bowl of soup or some derivation. And for dinner, we had a piece of bread. Started out five men to a loaf, then it went to seven men to a loaf, and at the end, it went to ten men to a loaf. In other words, the bread got smaller and smaller. Great weight loss diet, by the way. (laughs) But the guy you were bedmates with. That's fascinating. I see where you're going. Yeah. We doubled up because we each had a thin blanket and we slept on straw and on slats. And it was cold and there was no heating. So we figured it out that if we would sleep together, we would have two blankets, one on the bottom and one on the top, and the heat from both people. And the guy I drew came from some border state. Kansas, maybe? No. uh, Anyway, wherever it was, he had never known a Jew except over the counter. And here we were sleeping together every night for warmth. One blanket his on the bottom, one blanket mine on the top, whichever way it came out. And, you know, if I believed in a purposeful Jewish God, I would have said, that's why he made me a prisoner, so I could educate this guy. (laughs) Because originally he had all the horrible myths of... Well, yeah, he didn't know any Jews except over-the-counter, you know. And he was asking me, do we really use blood in the, of Christian children making matzah kind of thing, you know. So that was, <laughs> that was really basic training going on here for this guy. And, um, and we slept together every night for three months, you know. And You lost a lot of weight together. And we lost a lot of weight together. But the point is, how could he go home and think Jews were terrible people again after that? You know, when he would slept with them, with one for all those time, and he would ask me, you know, do we really use the Jewish blood of Jewish children? I can't remember what it was, but he had all the mythologies that are out there. You've said a couple times now words to the effect of if you believed in a purposeful God. Yes, um, that's obviously a whole conversation that can be had. Well, I am. I am. You're looking at a Jewmanist. But, but I, I did want to note that for whatever reason, in the camp, when asked, you said you were Jewish. Well, the reason was not, yes. When I went into the camp for the first time we were registering, they said name rank, name rank serial number, that you're supposed to be able to do. And then they got to religion and said, no, I don't have to answer that. And they said, hmm. So finally I said Jewish. And the guy who was checking me in looked at me and said Protestant. And I again said, Jewish. He said, Protestant, get, get out of here. So he put me down as Protestant. But you... But you, Big but, but you were honest. I was principled. honest. I didn't know whether he put down Jewish, but when I went right. in, all I wanted to do was get food and get warm. Yeah. We'd mentioned your father, but did not mention your mother. Ah, uh, Gittel. You'd come to a, a Seder, Passover, and, and there would be all these people there. Ah. Uh. I'd say, where did you where did you meet these people? Where did you find? <laughs> well, he was, uh, and and then I said, well, come to the site. So there were always interestingly new kind of un- improbable people at the Seder. and we had great joy. She loved entertaining. She but, became a wonderful uh, hostess of dinner parties and such. And uh, but you said in, in the book uh, that's clear that she. 
uh, maybe sometimes to your father's consternation, she would want to talk on the phone and uh, be with friends and uh, and it, have actually, all sorts. Of- he actually pulled a wire, the whole system out of the wall once because he got so irritated <laughs> with her. But but you also say that uh, uh, I guess she explained that at least some of the people who came for Passover had picked her up out of the street. Uh, well, not picked them up out of the street, but they were not friends of any of us. We had never met them, and I, you know, they came sometimes from people she knew or people she only knew a little bit, and and it didn't matter. She just invited them in, and they became part of the group, and we just. But it, it's also indicated that because she had some uh, health issues, she she would actually pass out in the street. Oh yeah, and, and they somebody, would actually. That's right, exactly right. I'm sorry, I forgot that somebody who picked up and helped her, she invited him to the seder. So that, now, now we want to start faking passing out all over the place to make. <laughs> well, if you want to meet interesting new yeah. people, that's one way to do it. Right, and and good. he to some degree has carried on this tradition of inviting people to Passover. I was baptized Catholic, but my whole family isn't was not raised Jewish, and. Grandpa has continued the tradition of holding Well, more importantly, Seder not dinner. only me, but my my non-Jewish wife and my non-Jewish ladies who were there have all embraced that and done it very, very well. Gloria did, and then Sally did, you know. It, it, they just were all very sweet, and, you know, it's not easy to host a Passover Seder. You know, it takes a lot of preparation with the dishes and the food and separating out the thing. So, but they did it, and that always amazed me that they were willing to do that for me. I learned that at one point I learned that my nickname in high school was Elijah because there was an empty chair where I should have been sitting, and I never was in school. <laughs> you were never invited. <laughs> um, you were always absent. But I, I, I do. I mean, this, I've been to diverse seders over the years, and, and I think the ones that are, are to me most profoundly satisfying are ones where there's a sense of welcoming people in, leaving the door open. People are, uh, it's not just the prophet Elijah that you leave a chair open for, but it's literally an embrace of anybody. But you enjoyed coming to say this, right, Rachel? Always. And it's the story of Passover that was always interesting and tying it into Grandpa's experience in the war. Um, And then, unfortunately, what goes on to this day and talking about tyranny. So... It's it's always been a good time to reflect on what's going on and also bring together so many different people of different backgrounds yeah. and refugees. I was I was bemused by uh, our president's latest edict banning anti-Semitism. You know, no Jews are you know we put a big thing around Jews and you don't as though that was going to take care of anti-Semitism. You know, it, it is um, a, a profoundly pervasive. And occasionally recurs in a more active way for reasons which we won't go into now. But it is something that, you know, we all have lived with and will continue to deal with. I I did want to ask you a question about diversity. Now, I, in, in your book throughout, there are moments where you're talking about on a given project, we should have more women writers or how your consciousness was raised when somebody pointed out yes you have a character who's a lead character is a woman but all the other characters are seem to be males um, and so much of your work also was done to to uh, bring people together not just in this country 
but internationally to introduce people to all kinds of other understandings and traditions. Um, in thinking about the, the TV I remember as a kid, and it's, I, I'm not picking on Wonderama, I'm also talking about, again, Leonard Bernstein's shows and whatever, uh, the audiences were significantly like me and my sisters. They were maybe white, middle class, what have you. Um, there are some exceptions. I Now I know a little bit more. I know that your mother seems to have invited half the audience each time. So maybe she was to some extent inviting the people she knew or they were asking her and she'd get some of them into the audience, which was a select... Were there about 20... At one round, about 25 kids or so? No, there were about... Between fifty and seventy-five, okay. yeah. um, and I, and again, anyone familiar with your career, or you, including through this book, knows that you've championed all kinds of people having opportunities and and being celebrated. Uh, but in the TV of that specific era, I'm curious if you think there was both a, a true awareness of who the, of that the audience out there could also be was also kids of uh, people of color uh, was was there a, was there the kind of egalitarian thinking that inclusivity that that we might want today uh, and in hiring people was that a consideration at all oh no in hiring people forget it if you were black you never you never had a chance um in terms of audience, in terms of programming, I don't think networks at that time, I'm talking about the 1950s, 60s, uh, had any awareness of anything but white. I mean, you can see it in the casting, you can see it in the storylines. It was only later we began to see shows for people who are African-American and, and Hispanic, and that became a very rich source of programming, but it had, to, it had to grow and configure. In the beginning, it was not anywhere part of anybody's consideration. It's, it's really, to me, interesting and poignant that I, I know from... You, all you have to do is watch a little bit of what you can see of these shows, or Robert Kennedy talking to a kid who's asking about... Uh, asking then Senator Kennedy uh, about whether money should be going to the space program or for programs addressing poverty. You have a sense that there's a liberal atmosphere and, and, and there are real concerns about society, but that somehow it's still being addressed to the people like me uh, who were, I don't even know if it was a thought process well, of privilege. I think part of that was regional. I think New York, New York. would have been more a place where that would be done. I think you could go to big parts of America at that time and see none of that. Right. Now, there were people like Ed Morrow, Edward R. Morrow, whose voices were very well respected and heard, and others like that. And remember, there were only three network news sources. And so those are pretty good, responsible people who are dealing in those areas. And they were good shows and good features being done. And CBS did, with Morrow, did some great documentaries at that time. I, I, I mentioned, uh, actually before we started recording this, that my father was in television and radio, and my mother worked at a famous drama school. My father's second wife uh, 
Nancy Camerata was her name before she uh, became Nancy Newman, was actually an associate producer for Edward R. Morrow for, for a while. For Morrow? Oh. Yeah. So, uh, so wherever you I mean, been. he is the... Uh you know, the, the great illustrator of, of responsible programming and taking television seriously and news seriously. So I, I do want to, um, I, I appreciate all the time you've given us. I, I, I want to ask you quickly about a couple of things that, uh, at least, that happened after Wonderama um, because they really seem important, uh, as were the other efforts. Uh, one is the uh, the uh, the work you did with uh, composers. Oh, songwriter series. The songwriters. Um, with yeah, that started because a friend of mine named Maurice Levine uh, had a program at the YMHA on Ninety Second Street, which in New I used York. to go to as a kid. Yeah, and that was, uh, and he started bringing these people out, and I started watching them. And I thought, well, these are very fascinating stories. So I thought, wouldn't that be great to be able to do it on, on the show? So um, that's why those exist. And I must you know, give full credit to him. But, uh, yeah, I loved working with those guys. By the way, I did nine of those. And when I was finished, I looked at the nine and realized they were all Jewish. Now, I didn't set out to get Jewish composers. But every single one of those marvelous creators of American musical theater are Jewish. These are people like uh, Leonard Lowe, Richard Rogers, uh, uh, yeah. and 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 uh, absolutely. Now I can explain why, in theory, why that is true. But that it is true is in, you know incontrovertible and fascinating. Um, are those? What happened to those uh, shows? Are they around? Are they, are they? Well, I, I I have a bunch of them here, but because um, <clears throat> I love them and I I've played it for the people here, and they love to see those shows again. I mean, I have a sh- shows with the composers right. and the lyricists, and and they perform their own stuff. You know, whether it's Alan J. Lerner or people like that. So that's great, and I was very delighted to be able to do that series. Are those available to the public anywhere? Yeah, you can go up on, uh, on YouTube. Um, huh? YouTube. YouTube. Oh, yeah, somewhere up there, and uh, you know, go for the composer. The series is called the Songwriters. So I mean, that's such a that's the overall series. Extraordinary type. contribution. Uh, well, they, each one of them talks about and performs. His songs, and by the way, they were all male. Is there somebody you wish you had included who could? Have yeah, been one guy who I want was Jerry Herman, and Jerry Herman only wanted to sit on the stage at a table and lecture. And that's not what I was doing, so I had to forego Jerry. Who wrote uh, Hello, "Hello Dolly"? Big pun. He wrote, he wrote "Hello Dolly." And yeah, he did. He wrote a lot of good stuff, yeah. but I had to forego that because that that was not my format. But, hey, I got the best of the best in those. I'm so happy to do those nine shows. And you, um, you were president of the, America, of the uh, television? Uh, I was head of the Television Academy for a couple of years in the early 1970s. Consistently, you've uh, tried to, in your own way, tried to do what you can using the positions you've held to uh, create 
programming or to, and or to inspire others well, to Well, I mean, when I was head of the academy, that was not programming, but it was about the issues. For instance, at that point, CBS was um, undergoing pressure because they were selling, doing the, the Pentagon Papers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I wanted to position us as supporting of that, which I did. Um, so to the, whatever extent I had any influence or the Television Academy had influence except giving out prizes, I was able to use that. What about the uh, work you were doing with, uh, in terms of soap operas and other uh, types of uh, shows? Well, that goes back to an organization called Population Communications International, which was how to use the power of storytelling to change behavior. Now, that's tough, changing behavior. Is not is tough. Changing, you know, a policy, that's one thing. But changing behavior on the part of individuals, that is tough. So what we were engaged in in, in, in that organization you mentioned was working with people in various countries and the television people in those countries to figure out what kind of program we could create that would change behavior. Brazil was doing it all the time. Brazil was brilliant at having programming on social issues and, uh, and, and very open and very good about it. But that, that was an exception, and most of the world that wasn't being done. So it, it was an interesting adventure I embarked on for maybe 25 years, which is how to use the power of storytelling to good, to good ends. That's, a, that's an interesting uh, uh, thing to, to embrace, and, it, you know, it, and that wasn't always successful. I wasn't always effective in doing it, but we had some good good effects on that. I, for instance, every year I had what I called the Soap Summit here, and I would invite the heads of the networks, the heads of daytime drama, and the executive producers of soap operas, at which time there were about 11 daily, reaching about 20 million women. So that was an important segment of audience to try to get when you want to change people's behavior. Anyway, changing other things uh, is difficult, but changing behavior, that's tough. I want to ask you sort of a follow-up question on on the the matter of storytelling, but I I do want to stress that the book is a delight. Um, Thank you. I don't disagree with that. And we are skipping whole areas of your, obviously, life and, and, and career, but you... That's okay. But, I've, I've lived through all of them. I, well, I've taken care of that. I, I want. I want to stress that what what's really kind of uh, stirring is that you carry on in good faith. You do make clear that there are choices that maybe sometimes work out better than other choices, but that they're your choices, and they're also sometimes a result of circumstances circumstances that just pop up. And voila, you're on a plane to say to New York from St. Louis or whatever. But that you kind of it is the journey. It's not always what at the end of the day actually happened. It's it's the effort to to get things going. And sometimes those work. Sometimes they don't. Yeah. Um, but the storytelling part is something that I think is is uh, maybe a matter that in this day and age we should be talking about more how we communicate you, you've mentioned that the again how people don't listen well, to each except other except that we have now splintered into a thousand sources 
you know, when I was doing what I was doing, there were really three main sources, the networks and then the local stations. Today, there are so many more sources that we couldn't nearly be as effective as we were then because we would only be reaching pieces unless we somehow had a brilliant thing that we did that everybody wanted to see. But reaching out to a pre-existing audience that would carry our message, it gets to be more difficult now because it's all so splintered into so many pieces. Um, but then I, I look at my granddaughter and say, well, there's other ways of carrying that message. You know, I don't have to do it on television. She can be very effective on the ground. And, uh, you, you know, in some ways, television, <laughs> well, in some ways, television is a glancing factor, a mm. rather remote factor in terms of changing behavior, modifying behavior. We can show various aspects of it, but it's the feet on the ground and the person engaged in the actual work that's doing the work. So I, I, uh, I want to turn some attention to her and what Rachel is doing because it is so important to have somebody like that in the, in the community. So uh, blessings on you, my daughter. And, and given that that's my, the community we, uh, I live in, I, I, I wholeheartedly second that. It, is, it, makes, it makes life or death difference essentially or close to that for people a lot of times people feel they've tried everything and now only now that they're going to reach out to their government office or representative uh, i mean there is yeah she's ha- i mean i was doing things through television she's hands on i was doing things collectively she's doing things individually yeah. and that's a very different ball game and, you know you don't go home at nine o'clock uh, or at, at five o'clock you don't get on the air for one hour a day and do do what you do I mean, she's out there a lot of hours every day and a lot of days during the week, including Saturdays and Sundays, I have found because I've reached out to her and she said, no, she's busy on Sunday doing that and this. So she is, I, you know, as an exemplar of what a person can accomplish if they're willing to put their heart and their lives into it. And, and, and Rachel is surely a model for other people and, to and, think about. And there are, again, they, for all kinds of constituents... By the time they pick up the phone and call, they're they're fraught with anxiety about whatever issue has come up or whatever concern they're facing. A lot of times they're happy and they're, they have an idea to share. Whatever it is, they the last thing in the world that, that is of help to them and to society is for them to feel like they are stuck in a twilight zone yeah, where they well, don't get an answer. That's why not waiting for them to be in trouble, but right. to be out in the community... Right. And being seeing where they are yeah. is so important, Rachel, yeah. right? Yeah, and I think, I, I again, I want people to understand that government can work for you. And I think sometimes we struggle to demonstrate the things that or tell the story of all the um, things that government can accomplish and do for the people. And we need to continue to tell those stories out there so people still have faith in their government and they still want to participate and engage with their elected officials is really important. Yeah, trusting trusting the government, trusting the resources, knowing how to utilize them. It's very, it's not easy, especially if you're, you know, you're not well educated or something of that sort and and don't have a lot of resources at hand. It um, yeah, it's there, but it's not there if you don't know about it, right? And there's a difference in tone too between Maybe it's old school, the fireside chat or the LaGuardia reading the cartoons, the comic strips over the radio. 
versus somebody sending out tweets that are meant to attack others. Um, and, and hopefully somewhere in this, and I, I don't want to try, draw too direct a, a link between you and differences in political styles, but I do think that the, uh, the capacity to, to, to listen to people, including kids, uh, to tell stories and to understand, or let me rephrase that, to understand the power of, of a story that people want to know uh, not just the grim details or the, uh, the promise that they may not believe. They want to they be told that things matter. And that's, I think, where the storytelling and its best comes in. And, uh, and I, I really do think that the history of TV is, is in a way, the, the history of modern America and the world now. I don't know where people are going to go. Uh, you, you talked about, in terms of media and communications and technology, you talked about how when you started off, basically it was all there to be invented. There weren't so many rules and guideposts. Well, and, there were few, and there were fewer sources. So, you know, there were only three uh, networks, then there were only a, modern, a modest number of, of cable channels. Now there's a plethora of, you know, you can, the audiences become very splintered. So, so people do have to, uh, to get to, in, in a way, invent themselves on some cable channel that nobody may be watching, or with a podcast, which you don't know who's listening to it. But, but on the other hand, there's a matter of respect and regard and listening and caring about what people think and being truthful. Well, we're a very complex society, and each of us individually is very complex. So it's it's not easy to wrap up mass messages, or but if you have a good leader, a a, a, a guy who you identify with and respect, or a woman, that person could be really very effective. Guy in the non-gender. I don't know that we have any such person at this point in this country. So the the the, the thing that obviously happened with your career in in television and radio and theater also, um, but especially in television, is that you have decades later, generation or two or three later, you have all kinds of people who grew up with you and who still tell you how much they... Yeah, and the, I, what amazed me is the last Thanksgiving, my website, which is sunny at sunnyfox.tv, I guess, um, I, there were hundreds of messages. Now, these are kids who are now in their 70s. <laughs> you know, and to suddenly, because I've been thinking about taking that whole website down, because I don't know who cares anymore, I might as well take it down. And then suddenly there's an explosion of hundreds of messages coming in. I think, well, wow, that's really extraordinary uh, for all these people that, after all these years to take the trouble to say, have a happy Thanksgiving. That's, that's that's pretty um, amazing, and I guess I'll leave it up for a little while longer. Good for you, um, and thank you for doing my job and promoting your your website. When I I would have done it eventually, and <laughs> we would have introduced it. No, He's it's, a professional. It's a professional way. Um, so thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Renee, who's been quiet here, but uh, thank you, Rachel, for everything you do, and, and of course others who likewise. Uh, serve in, in public service and government or whatever capacity, but are really earnestly trying to help people. Uh, it makes a huge difference. 
And so most of all today, may I say thank you, Sonny Fox, for uh, joining us, but also for just uh, really being uh, a, a kind, a generous, and illuminating, a, a humble uh, person. Humble? Nobody ever accused me of being humble. I, I, no, I've I, never heard that in Sonny said, Fox. In I said sentence. that in a measured tone, but I did say it. <laughs> um, I, I think having, again, having spent... You know, like having read your book in, in recent hours, um, I, I would, and again, I recommend it totally. And is available. And it's available on Amazon, and hopefully, any good, any worth its well. Bookstore. Bookstores, we want every bookstore to do well these days. But uh, the book is "But You Made the Front Page!" Exclamation mark. Wonderama Wars, Wars, and a whole bunch of life. This Wonderama Wars and a whole bunch of life. And again, "But You Made the Front Page" is the title that. Uh, came about because of your my mother mother and uh, hopefully everyone makes the front page and and well and good not, things not if they have in, to get fired to do it in a good way <laughs> but if not and this is what I meant by humble or humility the the capacity to to take things in stride and learn and move on and still do good is I think to some extent all about humility as well so thank you so much. And uh, with that, any, any parting? And thank you for giving us the airtime you're going to give us. And I'm thank you for bringing my granddaughter into my presence for this amount of time. I would not ordinarily have her here on okay. this day except for this. <laughs> and and let, me, let me, for the record, I, I know we explained this before we started, but just for those of you out there who are curious, I got an email about a community event, uh, an email from Rachel, and I... Uh, kind of thing that she sends out in her constant communications with people throughout the uh, district, that, the council district that uh, she helps. Um, and I just looking at the name Rachel Fox, I suddenly was thinking of Sunny Fox, and I and I emailed her and mentioned, you know, there's no way you're related, or probably you know, it's my generation, something you wouldn't know about, but. There's this guy who, among other things, went through some extraordinary things, not just in television, but uh, as a prisoner of war. And those are some of the things we all should know about, how people, st- in this case, the person who stood up and said, essentially, we're all Jews. Um, th- that kind of thing, I said, it's really, there's no real reason for me to be mentioning this to you, but I'm telling you that seeing your name made me think of Sonny Fox, and this is a little bit about him, and she said, that's my grandpa. So that's how this happened. Uh, sometimes just me opening my big mouth and, and free associating seems to lead to a nice time. So thank you so much, both of you and Renee. And uh, with that, uh, everyone have a lovely uh, new year this upcoming, to, as I speak, upcoming 2020. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hole in the Air. We encourage you to explore Sonny's website, sunnyfox.tv and to read his memoirs, But You Made the Front Page, Wonderama, Wars, and a Whole Bunch of Life. We leave you with the piano stylings of keyboard titan Fingers Del Rey. <laughs>